Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Stephen Flynn. Stephen has been teaching music for over three decades. As a master trainer of the Rhythmic Arts Project curriculum, Stephen facilitates percussion ensemble classes to students of all diagnoses. He's been featured in many international publications, including The Modern Drummer and Downbeat magazines, and published his first book, Contemporary Urban Percussion, in 2016. Stephen has also appeared on over 40 commercial releases of creative music and has toured extensively throughout Europe, Japan, and the United States. In this conversation, we discuss the benefits of learning a musical instrument, such as increased focus, listening, communication, confidence, motor strength, stress management, and cognitive development, generalizing skills outside music class, Stephen's alternative notation system on piano, how to use drums to communicate with non-speakers, what Stephen has learned from working with autistic students, why he decided to spend six months in Thailand as a monk, and how that experience influenced his teaching, and the biggest mistake many musicians make. In this episode, discover what's possible when students lead the beat. To learn more about Stephen Flynn, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you Stephen Flynn. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Let's start with a brief introduction. I started teaching drum set in 1988, and I've been a professional musician since the late 70s. And what happened was, is I was doing a national solo percussion tour from San Francisco to New York City, and uh, that was in 2006. And when I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I gave a drum clinic and a concert. And the gentleman, Bob Stagner, who has an organization there, who hired me at the end of it, he said, you know, I think you'd be really great at working with this population. I suggest when you get back to the West Coast that you look into that. So I did. Within a week of getting back to the West Coast at the end of the tour, I ended up volunteering for six months at SARC. And, uh, the rest is history. I, I, I started doing ensembles initially with the Rhythmic Arts Project protocol. I've continued the work. I ended up working for four years for the Los Angeles Unified School District at Lannerman High School, which is the largest special needs high school on the West Coast. I did three ensembles a day there for four years. And the four years that I spent at that school, each ensemble had 15 students and they were in all in different places on the spectrum. So it was such a great opportunity because what it allowed me to do is to learn how to adjust very quickly to where each student was on the spectrum and adjust all of my lessons accordingly. 
with each student. And it was such a positive experience for those four years I spent at Lanterman High School. And uh, I've been teaching online. I started teaching online uh, several years before the pandemic. And right now I'm, I'm primarily teaching online, but I'm looking forward to getting back to doing more social skills ensembles. I just love the work. I'm very passionate about it. I believe that this population has so much to teach everyone. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I was exposed to at Lanterman in the four years I was there was these students never complained about anything. They were such powers of example to me and all the other staff there at the school. I really feel in many respects that my autistic students are really here to teach me as much as I'm here to teach, to work with them. Hmm. Yeah. That's beautiful. You know, we, I really love bringing on musicians on the podcast because I also share the passion for music. I did some coursework in music therapy. I'm not a music therapist, but I understand completely the power of music and how it can help people. So what can you share specifically about the benefits of learning a musical instrument for an autistic person? Well, you know, I think uh, many of the benefits for, are the same for everyone. Music teaches discipline. It helps with focus, helps with listening. I have all of my piano students hum, even students that are not yet verbal, hum the notes. And when you hum the notes with a piano, for example, it's very good for stress. And I think that there's a lot of spillover into every area of a person's life as a result of playing a musical instrument. I teach a piano using an alternative notation system where the notes are colored and we put colored bands on the fingers that correlate to the notes. And I find that to be very effective. And while it's still good for ocular motor strengthening, it's not as challenging as reading standard Western notation. A couple of the other things that I do is I teach West African rhythms to students. And I also, I think I'm the only uh, person in the country, in America, that specializes in teaching the drum set to autistic students online. That's, you know, I figured out a, a method of doing that that involves phonics that makes it much easier for the student to learn actually how to play the drum set, how to play rhythms, how to play a fill in the correct place, and how to play along to records. And then the other protocol that I do is the rhythmic arts protocol, and that's really geared for cognitive development. And while it's musical in nature, it's not like studying a musical instrument because our objectives are much different than a musical instrument. We're primarily working on cognitive development through a multi-sensory protocol. So for example, we work with forced responses, prepositional concepts, lateral movements, spelling. But like here, I'm showing you on, on, on the screen here, an octagon. So I would show this to a student, I would say, what is the name of this shape? And I would have them play it on the drum. Octagon. Then I would have them count the sides as I point. And if appropriate, I would have them spell octagon. So they see the exercise, they hear it, and they feel it. So it's tactile, audio, visual combined with speech. And there's a lot of research that seems to indicate that multisensory education of this nature is very good for re retaining information. And one of the things I've also found is with a lot of my students that are limited verbal, by having a drum in front of them, they don't feel so self-conscious. 
And the other thing is, uh, you know, some of my students that, that started with me, they were kind of shy. And what they started to do was to mirror me. So if I use a lot of enthusiasm by demonstrating an exercise, they're more apt to go, oh, I can do that. And they'll mirror that back to me. And that's very rewarding to see a student who's really working on their, their verbal skills kind of open up like that, you know, mm. particularly a lot of the lads, because a lot of the gents that come to me, it seems that the majority of their service providers are women. So they kind of get in, you know, we kind of get into this whole drumming thing that's a little bit different out of the norm. Mm. Right. And I'm sure it also builds some confidence, right? Great point. And one of the things I'm super big on is positive feedback. When students do something really good, I'm very quick to say, great, outstanding, way to go. Because I believe that a teacher's primary job is to build confidence and motivate the student. If you're not motivating the student and you're not building confidence, you're not doing your job. And if you're doing those two things, they're going to be having fun. And if the student's having fun, they're in a more resourceful state physiologically for learning and being receptive to everything you're working on. Mm -hmm. Do you do any songwriting with your students also? I have certain piano students that we work on composing. Mm -hmm. I'll give them very, very simple parameters to work with over a period of time. And I'll challenge them, but not overwhelm them. Uh, for example, I have a student... Ben, uh, he's in Alabama. I gave him some composition exercises and he was using a lot of notes. And I, for this uh, next week, he, is, he composed something. I gave him four notes to use and he only used half notes and whole notes. Ah, cool. Okay. So I like to give parameters. And you know what? This is the same way that I compose at the piano. There's a lot of freedom through limitation. Yep. So, or I'll say, you know, I, I want to use quarter notes and you can use two half notes or two uh, eighth notes in certain places, but really nail down the parameters. And, and that usually makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's a form of self-expression too for them, right? So they're letting it out, whatever it is that they might be feeling, they're putting out there, whether it's through composition or letting it out on the drums or whatever other instrument they have in front of them. I do a prepositional concept exercises with my students. I'll have them hold a shaker and we'll say, we'll vocalize where the movement and I'll, I will lead them usually right, left, over the head, under the chin, out in front, behind the back, all the way around. Once the student becomes really good at following those instructions, then I'll say, okay, you're the composer now. You tell me what to do and do it in any order you like. <laughs> and I do that in group classes too. In my social skills group classes, we'll work. With, I'll, I'll say you're the composer, and you're going to work with loud and soft. So they will move their hands up how the ensemble to play loud and soft, or they'll move their hands fast for getting the, the group to play faster or slower. They have to mirror the composer that way, and that's really good for confidence. And students love to do that because they get a, very empowering for them to lead a group. Mm -hmm. So tell us more about your social skills percussion class. Okay. Well, you, anytime I work with any group, it's in essence a social skills class because we have to have rules so the group plays well together. I'm very big on turn-taking. Some students wrestle with turn-taking depending on where they are on the spectrum. So we really emphasize turn-taking and listening. 
So if I'm working with someone on this end of the room, you respect your neighbor and that sort of thing. We work a lot with the names, your neighbor's name. If a student is acting up, the first thing I'll, I'll tell them is, okay, you have a warning. If they act up again, I take the drum away. I'll say, now you, you sit, listen, you behave, I'll bring the drum back. And then if they don't behave, they continue to act up. Then I say, well, you've decided that you need to leave the circle because being in the circle, you need to be a member of the group. And then I'll have them sit outside the circle. And then after a while, I'll say, are you ready to be a part of the group and work with the group? And usually they are. And then I bring them back into the circle, things of that nature. It's all about working as a group. Mm-hmm. And it's the same for any high school band, really. Um, I mean, uh, sports are, are, are a team effort, but largely there's a few stars on the team that are you know, the main instigators of the, of the forward motion. And one of the things about music is that it's one of the few activities where everyone really needs to work together in order for it to be successful. Yeah. And uh, I uh, received a grant and wrote a book on bucket drumming because when I was in Los Angeles, I worked uh, two days a week at a place called Vista Del Mar, and I did a bucket drumming class for youth that had been expelled from the Los Angeles Unified School District. Some of them were actually were in lockdown. And for them, to work as a group was really, really a challenge but it was also very rewarding for them to come together because they didn't do anything together as a group, really. Mm-hmm. Right. And so these are typically high school students that you work with? I work with everything from three-year-olds to people well into adulthood. Okay, got it. When I was in Los Angeles, there just was a period of four years where it seemed like I was primary. At Lanterman High School, they have teenagers all the way up to the age of 22. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So going back to that example you gave of the student who might be acting up in the group, do you have any other supports in the classroom or in the room with you to be able to maybe recognize that maybe the student isn't necessarily acting up, but they just might need a break or maybe something might be a little bit too overstimulating for them? Well, it depends on the context. When I was at Lanterman, I was very familiar with the students, so that wasn't an issue. If I go into a situation where I'm not really familiar with the population, I'll talk to the parents beforehand, or I'll have a conference with them before I get heavy with the disciplinary issues, because there's different ways of communicating with different you know, students on the spectrum. And you're right, I don't really want to be heavy-handed if it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. So with that picture of the octagon, you were demonstrating how someone might communicate, someone who's maybe a non-speaker or not yet verbal student, as you said. What are some other ways that you might communicate with non-speakers? Well, you know, I guess it kind of depends on whether they're limited verbal or not yet, they're entirely not yet verbal. Mm -hmm. One of the things about the spectrum is there's just so many shades and so I really don't have a one-size-fits-all answer for your question. Yeah. And also, different students learn differently. Mm-hmm. So my job is to tap in the best way to reach the student. Some students are more verbal than others. Some of them are more visual than others. And some of them, the tactile element of learning really resonates with them. So mm-hmm. depending on where they are, oftentimes the parents are quite helpful in the lesson with highly impacted students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any students that communicate with an AAC device or an alternative augmentative communication device? I have some students that use some of those, but they, we don't use them on the lessons on Zoom. Okay. Right. Yeah. So could you 
explain how you run the classes through Zoom? Like, how does it work if you're not in the same room? Well, you know, what I found is it actually works great. I pretty much work with them the same way I would if I was in the room with them. The only thing that's a little bit different is, for example, I'm holding up a card here with different colors. These are clear notes, black, green, blue, blue. And for something of this nature, I'll have the parent put color botches in different places. And so it's not the same. One of the things that I do with the lateral movement and with just about everything is I will play, if the student is right-handed, I will play left-handed. If they're left-handed, I'll play right-handed. I always try and make it so they can mirror me. That's very helpful. Mm -hmm. And they have instruments in their own house that they can work with. Yeah, I have students get a small hand drum and a shaker. And usually for the first lesson, if they don't have a, a small hand drum and a shaker, I'll have them use a bowl or a table and an, an aspirin shaker or, mm. you know, aspirin container or vitamins as a shaker. You know, it's important to have a lot of visual movement with Skype and not be, I mean, and Zoom rather than being stationary. So some of the things that I will do is I will move up to the screen and back. That has a tendency to draw the student in. I like students also, depending on where they are, to, I like them to, to move their bodies and change their physiology. One of the things that I'll do with a student, if they're maybe a little challenged with something, I'll have them put their hands in the air, stand up, and say, I got this. I'll even have them shout it. I'll have them jump. I'll have them put their hands on their hips and stand up in the, the Superman dance and say, I got this. I'm going to crush it. So I'm very big on having a student change their physiology because I know for myself as well, when I change my physiology, I'm in much more empowered state for learning and to perform better. So those are some of the things that I do to get them you know, right in the groove. Usually what happens is after a student's done a few Zoom lessons, it becomes much more natural and they're much more comfortable with it. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So, you know, as we've been talking about music has a lot of benefits outside of just playing the actual instrument, right? Like these cognitive skills that can be developed or social skills. Could you share a story of one of your students who maybe had a breakthrough with some kind of generalization into some of these other areas that you work on? Well, I've got a couple of anecdotes for you. The first is I approach every student as if they can do every exercise. And the reason why that's important is if I approach every student with, they can do it, I'm gonna approach that student differently. And I'll give you an example. I had a student named Jose in Los Angeles and he was not yet verbal. And I went up to him one day, this is something I always do, it makes teaching way more interesting. I said, okay, Jose, play your name. And I went, Jose, and he went back to me on the drum, Jose. He said it. So uh, for parents and other educators who are listening, I highly ask you to consider every time you're working with your child or a student, approach them as if they can do it. And what will happen is with just about every exercise, a student will do better if they know you're expecting more from them. They know you're not going to give them a pass. They, and you know what? I believe that these students inherently want to be challenged. I've worked with hundreds of students over the maybe even thousands, I don't know. They want to be challenged. 
Well, for sure, they want to do a good job. Yeah, they want to be challenged. The other thing, uh, one of the great things about piano playing is students who have really weak fine motor skills can develop their fine motor skills through playing the piano. And I had a student recently who was unable to hold a pen to write their name, who's now writing because they developed their fine motor skills. Mm -hmm. It can also be generalized into holding a fork, like this holding a drumstick can be used for feeding too. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I'll even encourage parents to use right and left at the dinner table and use two different pitches for right and left as another way of teaching right and left. So I'll have them hold up their, so the, the student can mirror them and say, right. And then mm -hmm. with the left hand, I will hold up my right hand and say, left. So, you know, things of that nature at the dinner table, since you mentioned. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. When we work with words, I have a list of words that are appropriate for my students. And I will also ask parents if they have any particular vocabulary that they're working with their student in another context. And I write those words down on a big piece of paper and I have the student play the syllables of the word. So if the word was yesterday, yesterday, spell it. Y-E-S-T-E-R-D-Y. Suppose they fly through that. Then I'll ask them, use yesterday in a sentence, if that's appropriate. So I'll, I'll do that. So it's tactile audiovisual with words and vocabulary mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. sentences and phrasing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's even research that shows it can help with gross motor skills, like with walking more upright. Mm -hmm. Or if um, keeping someone grounded, if maybe they're kind of walking on their tippy toes. So having this kind of beat let's say on a drum to walk to gives them that sense of, okay, this is when I put my foot down and maybe even holding it. So they put their foot down all the way. I haven't personally worked with that, but it sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. I just, now all of the memories from my field work and music therapy are coming back to me. We did a lot of songwriting also where it was like fill in the blank. So we had this blues because I was, I did a semester at the Children's Hospital in Oakland, and it was called the Hospital Blues. So, you know, this child is sitting in bed for maybe days or weeks, having gone undergone a procedure or in recovery for something. And, you know, they're feeling kind of depressed or miserable. They want to go outside. They want to maybe play with their friends, but they're stuck in this hospital room. And so we would have this template of the Hospital Blues and it's like this simple, you know, 12 chord progression. And, and then at the end of each line, they would just fill in with whatever they're feeling, you know, or like they would kind of turn the story around into something positive also so that they're just feeling better about the situation. It's kind of like this acceptance of what they're going through. Great. Yeah. 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 Now, you mentioned earlier that working with autistic people has taught you a lot. What are some of those takeaways that you've personally learned from working with autistic people? I think the deepest thing is it's enhanced my uh, sense of empathy. Mm. I've always, I feel, been a pretty empathetic person, but working with this population has really made me such a more empathetic person. And that has such a spillover into all of my relationships. And it's made me a better teacher, you know? Yeah. And I think that. 
to work with this population, you really do need a lot of empathy to really be effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I can really relate to that. Even doing this podcast and hearing stories of a lot of autistic self-advocates of maybe things that they've gone through or struggles they may have with feeling accepted and included in society. So, you know, I imagine music is one place where they do feel like they belong, like it's this safe space for them. And it's also uh, really encouraging to see society becoming much more inclusive with this population. When I was a kid coming up, it really was nothing like it is today. So I'm really looking forward to see what happens over the next 20 years. Because I've never worked in a general population school, but the educators that I've talked to have said that the special needs students in the general population have really, really had a real positive influence on the other students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's a win-win for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's... Um... Sorry, I'm kind of jumping right now, but going back to some of these examples of the benefits of music and how it can affect other areas of someone's life. You know, it's really interesting to think about that connection between the speech part of the brain and the musical part. I'm not too versed in neuroscience, but, you know, just as you were mentioning before, like with Jose and the drums and him actually repeating after you when maybe his speaking skills were a bit limited. Not to interrupt you, he had never spoken before in his life. Okay, so that was like the first thing that he said. The first thing he ever said in his life, yeah. That's even more incredible. Yeah. yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, and I know there is some research showing that connection. Like there was this, some kind of politician, I think in California, was it? She was shot and... She suffered from a traumatic brain injury. And so she was doing speech therapy, kind of combined with music therapy. And they were able to rebuild her speech using music just by like singing along with songs. Like she was able to sing before she could speak again. And then eventually they shaped it into spoken language. So it was more natural. Wow. Yeah. And it got me thinking about this student that I used to work with. I've told this story a few times on the podcast, but there was this six-year-old boy who I worked with when I was living in France. And we used to have music classes, music time together. And he had some pretty severe behaviors, like self-injurious behavior, hitting his head pretty hard with his hand because he was frustrated. He couldn't communicate. He needed something or he wanted to express something, but he just didn't have the words to do it. So it came out in that way, the frustration. And through the music, we were doing like simple nursery rhymes, like row, row, row your boat. And so I do a little fill in the blank, like an introverbal row, row, row your. And then he would say, buh. He would make some one syllable sounds. So he'd fill it in with buh. And he eventually felt empowered that he could make that sound. And so he would use that sound to request for bonbon, candy in French, or ball. And so then we saw the self-injurious behavior go down because now he had the communication tool, which before we were doing the music, there just wasn't any opportunity for that. And so it taught the parents also 
that they could use music in other ways to kind of teach this language and eventually, you know, get the child or whoever the individual is in any other situation feeling like they have control of their lives and that they can advocate for what they need. Wow. Do you do any singing with your students? Primarily, you know, the majority of my students, I'm working on cognitive development and piano. And I also teach drum set. Okay, got it. So with the, because we're working on uh, notated music, we're primarily humming the notes. Mm. I have used some sargam, which is uh, Indian classical music, solfege. But oh, okay. I really like, I'm very big on humming because I found that it's so much easier for them to hum the notes. It's easier for me to hum the notes, you know? And it, it kind of puts you right in the space of the piano. And it's also kind of meditative, I think, to hum the notes because you have to br- you breathe differently when you're humming the notes than you do if you're just playing the piano. I saw a lot of elevated anxiety over the pandemic. And, uh, geez, it's a little over 30 years ago, I was a forest monk in Thailand. Oh, okay. And I worked a lot with the breath when I was a monk. And so I started working with the breath with my students during the pandemic in a very conscious way. And I found that was very effective for them. And so I continue to do that today. I like to, when I'm in a lesson, kind of always be watching the student and kind of calibrating where they are. And when I, you know, sometimes because we're working for a half hour, it might be a little bit intense. And I like to see if I'm if it appears that they might be getting a little bit overwhelmed or challenged, stopping and breathing together and uh, do that with the piano lessons as well. All of the lessons we take, we do breathing, conscious breathing. Yeah. Oh, I really like that idea. I mean, I think we could all use it more in our lives, this kind of conscious breathing, taking a pause. Absolutely. I mean, I, do, I know when I have anxiety, I'm not breathing as deep as I normally do. You know, yeah. I also did a mindfulness meditation class at an organization in uh, Phoenix called One Step Beyond with adults, and where we worked a lot with the breath, and they found that very helpful too. I, if appropriate, I think some sort of meditation is really, really helpful for everyone, whether effective or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. So, just out of curiosity, what prompted you to become a monk? Well, I was a high school dropout and uh, I was playing music as a teenager. When I was in my 30s, I decided that I was going to go back to school and get a, a degree. And I had so much anxiety over going back to school. And so I started meditating with these monks about 30 miles outside of Seattle as a natural way to address my anxiety. And uh, they said, well, you know, you need to take it to the next level. So I said, you know, I was game. And I got on an airplane a few months later, and I went to uh, central Thailand, way up in the mountains in Saraburi. And I was a monk there for almost six months. A lot of people think, well, six months isn't very long. And I'm like, well, try sleeping on the ground and eating one meal a day and not talking for six months and and get back to me. (laughs) Because it, it was very, very strict. Wow. Yeah. You have to follow like 250 rules. Uh-huh. And we meditate for really, really long periods of time. I mean, I'm looking at the wood floor of my flat right now. We would stand perfectly still 
for three hours in a standing meditation. And uh, if you don't get into a zone after about 15, 20 minutes, your feet start to really sting. Anyway, it's, it's a little more challenging than you think. But you know, that sort of training, I think, has helped me in, in my life today. Oh, that's so interesting. So you wouldn't be able to shuffle your feet at all. You have to remain in the same position. And you can't say, I'm not feeling it today, guys. I'm going to go take a break. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what do you think are some of the lessons that you've learned from that experience that have helped you as a music teacher? Well, I think that what I learned there probably helps me in every area of my life. Certainly not as attached to self as I was before. And uh, perhaps that's helped my teaching. Uh, my ego isn't as involved in this stuff. I do know that you know I perform internationally as a musician, and I know that I perform my best when I get out of the way. And I'm not trying to impress anyone. I'm just there to let you know, be a channel and support the music. That's like meditation to me because I'm, I'm kind of letting go of the self in a matter of speaking. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've also found. One of the takeaways of teaching is, as life and as from being a monk, was that the less I think about myself, the happier I am. If I'm really engaged in a lesson with one of my students, I'm not thinking about me. It's a very Zen, great place to be. And, you know, I'm very big on asking questions of myself. And I do know that if I'm not giving 100% to a lesson, I try to train myself to say, what can I do right now to make this the best lesson this student has ever had? When I ask myself a question like that, it completely reframes what I'm doing and makes it way more interesting for me and them. When I'm not thinking about, oh, geez, I'd rather you know be outside right now or whatever I could be going through my, my head at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I'm just even thinking about how I can apply that to my own life. And the people I interact with. Asking positive questions, I found to be really helpful in just about every area. Because me personally, if I don't kind of sit down and get conscious about the questions I'm asking myself, I'll ask myself questions that are negative and that don't serve me. Why is this so hard? As an example, or, you know, whatever the question may be. How did I get in this position? You know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Why do I have so many things to do on my to-do list? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I imagine that when you're in this way of being with a student, they can feel it from you. Oh, absolutely. First off, I think it's important to meet the student where they are. It's so important. And if they operate at a certain rhythm, personally, I think it's best to meet them where they are in terms of their rhythm. But having said that, I like to bring energy to the lessons, but I don't want, I don't want to come in too energetic, like with the real New York energy, because that, that might be too much for a lot of students. So if they talk really slow, I don't really want to come in and talk really, really fast. It's important, I think, in many respects to kind of mirror your students. And mirroring your students is very effective for developing rapport. And oftentimes, if a student is shaking a shaker in a certain way, I'll try and mirror how they're moving their body too to make them feel more comfortable. And I will also try and use words that they're using, not to manipulate them, but to develop rapport. Because developing rapport is so important to reaching your student and getting them to learn. 
if they don't like you or they're not comfortable working with you or they're not, they don't like the way you're working, they're not going to be effective on the lesson. And the objective is to get them to learn as much as possible every time you sit down with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oftentimes that's the first place we look actually in my field where we're working with students using some ABA therapy or behavioral principles. If there's a therapist working one-on-one with a child and it's not working, something's not working, the child is not learning or they're just not into it, we go back to that relationship. We look at, has the therapist paired well with this child? And maybe they did before, but something's fallen off and it happens. Well, now you just got to go back and rebuild it again. This is some of the training that you went through when you were learning to be a musical therapist. Was this other training? Oh, this is my other career. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. Right yeah. Now. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, before because I was working with students and families and schools when I was living in California as a behavior analyst, and so now with the Global Autism Project, my role has kind of shifted. I'm not working directly with families anymore, or at the moment. So the music therapy was another degree I was going for at the same time as the other one and just have some incomplete internships to fulfill before I get that certification. Well, great. But every time I have a conversation with another musician or music teacher, I'm like refueled to go back and finish it. All right, Stephen. So I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to one of your students or maybe anyone who's learning music? Maybe they're feeling a bit frustrated. What would you say to them to kind of encourage them? Well, it depends on what specifically they're working on. That's the first thing. But I think that the biggest mistake that so many musicians make is they try to work on too much material at one time. And I think that this has been my experience. I've been playing music since I was a teenager. That working on less material more thoroughly is actually more beneficial. And in the same regard, that also applies to listening to music. You know, when I was a kid coming up, we had records. We'd play the record over and over again. Today, kids have Spotify. They've got the iTunes. They have access to so much music that the tendency is to listen to the music superficially. And one of the things that's so important when you're learning an instrument is the concept of mastery and practice, which means to play something well, you need to play it well. So if you learn to play something pretty good and then you move on to the next material, you haven't spent enough time playing that previous material great. And one of the ways to play great is to play great. You want to reinforce greatness as much as possible. And usually it helps to eliminate a lot of bad habits. So I'm a big advocate on really getting deep on whatever it is you're working on. And in the bigger picture, you'll learn more music more effectively in the bigger picture. It just sometimes will seem like a short-term sacrifice, but a very long-term you know, benefit. Yeah, that's great advice. And it makes a lot of sense too, like strengthening the muscles that are already there, just kind of maintaining them. By the way, what kind of music do you play personally? Um, Well, I play many types of music. 
I've studied many types of music. I, I played straight ahead jazz for 20 years. Now I play a little bit, it's considered more postmodern, a little bit more avant-garde music, but it's not, we're not throwing spaghetti against the wall. One of the reasons why I prefer to perform with European improvisers is it's much more compositional in nature. So it's a little bit too left of center for most people, but I'm very passionate about it and I really love it. And, you know, it's just my voice. So that's, that's what I, it's really pretty avant-garde what I do. And how can people learn more about you? Well, they can write to me directly, or they can also check out my methodologies by going to www.specialneedsmusic.com. And uh, there's a lot of information there. There's videos. There's also some instruction uh, videos on my YouTube channel, which is Special Needs Music. Perfect. So uh, if you type Special Needs Music on YouTube, you'll find those videos as well. All right. We'll put a link to that in our show notes so people can go take a look. All right, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your ideas about how music can really benefit people. Well, thank you for having me, Rachel. really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Are you an autistic musician or a music teacher for students with special needs or a family member wanting to sign your autistic child up for music lessons? Share your questions, ideas, and experiences over in our online Global Autism community. Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online community to connect and collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.